0: Well, good morning, everybody. It is lovely to be here with all of you. For those who don't know me, um, I am Peter Berg. I'm uh, coming to you from Church of the Cross. I'm a priest and pastor of youth and adult ministries there. And it's just always good to get to come to, to all of you at Restoration and, and, and be with you in services and, and share with you. So I'm, I'm glad we can, we can be together today. Uh, To start with, I know you have um, the possibility that kids, kids and adults really, could be doing some drawing prompts right now, a way to engage in the service um, using some art. I saw there's some supplies and stuff in the back. So if anyone's working on that drawing prompt, I have a simple little uh, thing for you today. Uh, Today we're going to be looking at the 2 Corinthians passage. So if you're thinking about this, uh, you'll find it... It's in verse 14. Paul there is sharing a vision of the future. It's the day of the Lord, and he says he will boast in the Corinthian church, and they will boast in him. It's a really beautiful image. So just if you're drawing something, think about drawing something around that. Now, the day of the Lord means that Jesus has returned to judge the world, the good and the bad, that he is reigning as king. We will be with him forever. So draw Jesus back as the king. Draw yourself, maybe your family, your friends, and, and think about what you're doing there before Jesus, um, especially as Jesus is helping you to see and live in the world rightly there. So have some nice fun with that, and I know you can get your drawings posted back there if you do them. So... My youth group, our youth group at Church the Cross, um, we've done two different mission trips down into Merida, Mexico. It's in uh, the Yucatan Peninsula there. Uh, and a local organization, um, or at least a local part of an organization, it's YWAM Minneapolis. Um, they bring groups down to work with three local churches there. Um, those churches actually were started by a former member of our church, David Clark. Um, and so we enjoy getting to go down and just work with those churches however we need, or however they need, sorry. When we go, we just try to ask them, what do you need? How can we help? And then they just let us know and we, we jump in. And honestly, they don't really, they don't need our help in any of these things. They're always glad to have it. We can help with some things that they wanted to get done faster this way. Or, you know, there's always something novel about, about the American teenagers helping with a, like a Bible study for the young kids and things. But they're already doing all this ministry. We aren't there just because they have a desperate need for us to do ministry. Frankly, what they really want from us, what they are most excited about when we come is just getting to be with us. They are so eager to be with other Christians, and especially to connect with the church, even from far away. So they go so out of their way to give us a warm welcome. Many of us notice, especially in how they feed us that warm welcome. But so we'd have meals together with them, we'd worship together, we would hang out with them um, and throughout that whole time, they would take time to tell us their stories, uh, especially each pastor, one pastor for each church, um, but then church members, they would they would find time to tell their testimony. How did God save them? How has God been working among them and in their communities? Uh, how he's been faithful? And they would often add words of encouragement and also challenge. They would want to teach us and speak to us and all of these things as well. Um, there were frankly a couple lovely times where um, someone would come up to me and they would just start telling me their whole story even though I don't know any meaningful Spanish. Um, and I'd grab like a youth who knows a lot of Spanish. And then oftentimes though, those, they were too excited. They would go so fast, the youth couldn't even keep up. They couldn't translate or hold on. But they just had to tell me what God had done in their lives and challenge in that way. And it's just beautiful and wonderful moments. Um, the trips are just a great delight, especially for these relationships. Um, and they really demonstrated to all of us how powerfully, very powerfully what it means that we are one body with churches around the world. Um, these, these were great opportunities where we, sh- we were showed just what it means that we're actually all connected through the gospel. We have very little in common with the uh, believers in Merida, uh, but in Christ, we have all that matters. And we loved each other. We enjoyed each other's company. We could celebrate together. We were united in Christ, in his gospel, and that was what mattered. Well, as we explore this, this passage from 2 Corinthians today, we will not see that type of joy in celebration. Really, we're going to see the opposite throughout the whole book even. It's that way. But we will see at the very center of Paul's argument that the center of his conduct, his relationship with the Corinthians, it is the gospel. They have all been united together by Christ's great work, and that is what they must rely on to guide them forward together. So as we begin, I think it's helpful here to have a brief explanation of what is going on between Paul and the Corinthian church. Uh, This is part of a a long-term, ongoing relationship, and this letter comes amidst pretty big ongoing troubles, and so that becomes very central even in our passage here. So the church in Corinth was planted by Paul um, sometime before this letter, so maybe at five years at this point, point. Um, and they've been having problems with what they believed and how they lived, and actually if you read 1 Corinthians, you'll find Paul addresses many of the problems that were springing up in this church. But it seems First Corinthians, that letter was not well received by this church. So Paul, it was actually received so poorly, Paul has to make an emergency visit down to Corinth for this church. And that was a very hard visit. Paul actually calls it a painful visit. It seems many in the church were not receptive to him. They wouldn't receive his message. Um, there's at least one leader who is in outright um, conflict with Paul. And then after this painful visit, Paul wrote another letter to the Corinthian church. That's not 2 Corinthians, it's a different letter. Paul talks about it as a severe letter. It was very hard for him to do to write that letter. But that was delivered by Titus. Uh, and thankfully, many in the church um, began to repent and to turn back and to start wanting to restore this relationship they had with Paul. But still, everything was not yet right in the Corinthian church. There were still some practicing and believing things that contradict the gospel, and there are others who are undermining Paul's authority. Especially there was a group of other leaders, they were calling themselves apostles, um, and they believed that apostles, and really Christians in general, should be known by their victory and their power in life. They shouldn't be known to suffer, but instead they should be known for great skill, um, rhetorical skill, spiritual might, things like that. So Paul had to write to the Corinthian church again. That is the letter of 2 Corinthians. In this letter, he's so eager to continue mending his relationship with this church, and he's eager to correct these teachings and actions of these new so-called apostles. And at the very center of Paul's concern, we'll see it in our passage, we see it throughout the book, is the gospel. He saw that this church was potentially rejecting him, and as they did that, they were also potentially going to reject the gospel that he had proclaimed to them. And that was very serious. So this is the situation we're stepping into, even in this part of the first chapter. We've skipped the introduction here, and we're seeing Paul begin to move directly into addressing these concerns and problems that stand between him and the Corinthian church. Now we can just begin by acknowledging this is kind of a confusing passage. Even if you're like me and you've read it 20 or 30 or more times recently, it's not the easiest argument to follow. So, I think it helps just to look briefly, kind of right in the middle of the passage. If you look at verses 19 to 22, um, here we ultimately just see Paul is simply proclaiming the gospel. He says it's the Son of God, Jesus Christ, that they proclaimed. It's in Christ that all God's promises are yes. And in Christ, um, they have been established, anointed, sealed, given the Holy Spirit. We'll come back and unpack that a bit more, but for now, just recognize the gospel here. Paul shares it at the very center of his discussion because it underlies everything that he is saying and doing. It explains Paul's conduct among the Corinthian church. It guides all the decisions that he has made on their behalf, and it even the gospel created the relationship that Paul and the Corinthian church have together. The gospel is the reason for their deep and necessary connection, the reason they have to go forward and make things right. So just as we go forward, just keep the gospel in mind. Keep seeing the gospel throughout this. Now, we can go back to the very beginning of this part of the passage here in verse 12. So Paul, again, is beginning to step into this pain and problems that are existing between him and the Corinthian church. And he begins right away by clarifying all of his actions, all of his teachings among them. And he just says, our boast is this, that we have behaved in the world with simplicity and godly sincerity. He uses the language of boasting here. And if you actually continue in the book, he uses it off and on. Um, That may hit us wrong. What he means when we think about boasting, it's not what we typically think about boasting. When I hear boasting, I first think about arrogance, right? Or, Or that, hey, you should look at me. I'm amazing type pride. That is not what Paul means. Paul means confidence. But especially, he means here, confidence before God. Paul just means that when he says he can boast, he means, I can hold this up as good before the Lord. It really seems that these new apostles in Corinth were really good at boasting. So, Paul, even here, begins to counter their boasts about strength and power with true boasting in things that are truly good. So, here Paul boasts before Corinth again, not of power, but of simplicity, of godly sincerity. Paul says that he has lived in the world, and especially that he has lived for the Corinthian believers, not according to worldly wisdom, that worldly wisdom that prefers things like strength and power, but he's lived by God's grace. And it is by God's grace that Paul has been singularly focused on the gospel, That's, and, and the good of the church. Think of the simplicity part there. And Paul has been sincere. He's had pure motives. He hasn't been working for his own gain, but he's been working that the gospel be proclaimed and the church be strengthened. And taken together, and as Paul's argument moves on, we see in simplicity and and, and sincerity a lot about um, transparency for Paul. Paul is reminding them that you have seen everything about me. You know what I've done. I have hidden nothing from you. That's the line of thought that continues even into verse 13. He says there, we're not writing to you anything other than what you read or what you understand. That sounds a little weird, but it seems like Paul is really just trying to explain out to the church that I've always meant what I've said, and you've understood that. I've never written to you anything, uh, anything hidden, or there's no hidden motives, hidden meanings in what I've proclaimed. It's just the obvious things I've said of what I've actually meant. The things I've done are what I actually mean. Uh, my life, my teaching, it's focused on the gospel. It's for your benefit, and you have all seen this. Now, again, there are some in the church who aren't sure they should trust Paul at this point. So he's countering that by reminding them, but you've known everything I've done. I haven't hidden anything from you. There's there's nothing to miss. There's nothing to be misled by. It's all been open before you. And he actually goes on to continue emphasizing this in verse 14. As he says, really, he says, when the day of the Lord comes, you're going to fully understand this. You're going to see this clearly. On that day, on on the day of the Lord Jesus, you will boast of us as we will boast in you. So he's saying when Jesus returns to judge the world, then we will be without sin. We will see things truly. And at that time, Corinth, you will actually really understand how much I've loved you, how much I've served you. You won't doubt me anymore. He's confident of that. They don't have any reason to doubt him, and they'll come to that conclusion. But then he says, even at that time, I am still going to be so proud of you. I am still going to love you the same then. And really, this is a beautiful image of the hope of the gospel. Jesus will return to set all things right. And when he does, he will even restore relationships like this. Paul and the Corinthian church will be fully reunited and restored. I think this is a good place to pause in the passage for a moment. I find how Paul talks here about his life for the sake of the gospel um, really compelling. I think when we think of how we are called to live... When we think of how we're called to live because of what Jesus has done for us, how often do we just start with like the lists of do's and don'ts in Scripture? Or maybe we think, all right, Jesus has saved me and now he is just saying I need to avoid sin. That's what he wants from me. Now, those are really good things. Please do run from sin and pursue holiness. The lists of the like, you know, how to live in Scripture, they're very helpful for knowing what, what, what is good and right and bad for us. But I love in this passage that Paul's example of, of what the gospel in his life looks like is simplicity and godly sincerity. It's just not words or things that I think of right off the bat. Again, when Paul says simplicity here, he's really meaning his single-mindedness. He is singularly focused on proclaiming and living out the gospel. Um, there's no other motives at work ultimately in his life. And that goes hand in hand with his godly sincerity. He lives all this out in purity. He means what he says and what he does. And all of that is about Paul being transparent as well. Everyone knows what he does. They hear from him why he does it. He keeps nothing hidden. And all of this, the way Paul lives, is true for those who are in the church, who love Jesus, and it's true of the way he he relates with the rest of the world who don't yet know Jesus. I think that's wonderful. And I find in this um, pretty obvious call to, of course, take the gospel to heart, to focus on it, to focus upon Jesus above and before all else. And then also, a call to live with this type of openness and honesty so that everyone can see the love of God in Jesus Christ through all of us. There's a very strong call here to avoid secrecy and hiding. Everything we do, we do in the light. We don't have a private life that is totally separated from our public life. When we expect and require openness, honesty from our leaders as well. Now, even as I bring that up, I know that's not always an easy thing for us. Certainly, at least some of us have hidden things that we fear to reveal. We struggle with how to do that. We wonder if we'll be rejected or if we'll just cause more pain. We don't know what might happen. But still, I invite you to try to start opening up on these things. Start small. First, you do have to share these things with God openly. Of course, God knows what's going on in your life, but we have to talk with him about it anyway. And then try talking with a spouse or a close friend or grab some of the staff here at Restoration. Set up time for confession with Pastor Rick. The grace that we know in Christ will bring great healing even to our darkest places, but they can't stay secret. They can't stay in the dark. But Paul continues on from here Uh, to really what seems like a pretty small thing, and that is a change of plans. Originally, Paul had wanted to visit uh, the church in Corinth twice, once on his way to Macedonia and then once as he returned. But now he's going to go to Macedonia right away without getting to visit them first. That, of course, I think seems really understandable. Plans change, things happen, doesn't make sense. But obviously, Paul isn't taking this as a very minor thing, the way I would feel like. Just look at verse 17. Paul uses really strong language here. Was I vacillating when I wanted to do this? Do I make my plans according to the flesh, ready to say yes, yes, and no, no at the same time? He is putting out really strong questions here. He's asking, do you really think that I say yes, certainly, and no, definitely not at the same time about what I'm doing? Does it feel that way? And, of course, the answer is supposed to be no. Paul wasn't vacillating. No, he doesn't make his plans according to the flesh. But really, in a big way, it just shows us this is a really strong response to a simple change of plans. So why? Why does this matter so much? What's going on here? Well, it seems that this change of plans is presenting a a problem. And, And either Paul thinks the problem's about to come and he's trying to get ahead of it, or more likely, he's already started to hear that there are at least some in the Corinthian church who are not happy about this change. Again, things between Paul and this Corinthian church, they're still shaky. Maybe this is the thing that's going to drive them apart again. Even more, though, Paul is worried pretty specifically that at least some in the church are going to take this simple change of plans as proof much more broadly that Paul isn't sincere. He's not trustworthy. They're going to see in his change of plans that Paul doesn't mean what he says, that he's careless or self-interested or manipulative. And then he worries they're going to turn away from him. And the real fear isn't that they turn simply from him, but they turn from the gospel that he preached. Some really do seem ready to say, you know what, Paul, you never mean what you say. This is just the final evidence of that. Why should we then believe this gospel that you shared with us? Maybe these other apostles who are among us, maybe they're right after all. So Paul responds um, to all this concern uh, in verse 18 here. He proclaims, as surely as God is faithful, our word to you has not been yes and no. Paul says, Our word to you. What he has in mind here isn't simply what he said about his change of plans. Really, it's about everything that he's ever taught them, everything that he's ever said to them. Paul is getting right to the bigger issue at play. Again, that's is Paul trustworthy? Is he reliable? Is what he says reliable? So Paul is using this change of plans to enter right into the heart of the issue. And so he's thinking, is our word to you? Our word to you is the gospel, he proclaimed, first and foremost, centered everything. But then it's all the other teachings, all the ways he's told them he loved them and cared about them, even when he made plans to them. All these things ultimately come on his mind, and he needs them to know it's not been yes and no. Paul says, as surely as God is faithful, my word is faithful too. I think at this point, Paul's detractors are probably thinking, sure, God is faithful. That doesn't mean you are. But of course, Paul's not done here. He's going to keep going on to keep explaining himself, explaining what is going on. He next proclaims that in Jesus Christ, the Son of God, he says, in Jesus, we find God's yes. I love that line, and it's such a huge idea. Paul is thinking here that Jesus is God's yes, To us fallen sinners, Jesus is God's yes to the whole world. Jesus is God's yes of salvation. And he goes on again. All of God's promises are yes in Jesus. Especially on his mind would be God's promises and covenants with his people, Abraham, Moses, Israel, David. All of these promises that actually led to Jesus. Coming to earth to live, to die, rise from the dead and destroy death, restore God's people to himself. Really, God's yes in Jesus is just the whole of the gospel. And Paul is relying on that yes of the gospel right now to say to the Corinthian church, I love and serve Jesus and this gospel. And if Jesus is always yes for us, how could I be anything but yes for you too? Paul's whole life has been offered to Christ. It's been lived in submission to Christ. It's been lived to demonstrate Christ to the world. So Paul is saying, I can't be yes and no. Paul's saying, I couldn't be dishonest or self-interested because that's against everything that I believe, everything that I taught. It is against Christ. So I can't do that to you. But still, Paul moves on here. And this is where he gets right into the, the heart of the gospel again. He says, What more has God done for us? Well, this faithful God, his yes is in Jesus. Also, God has established us in Christ. It means he's made us to stand firm in Christ. God has anointed us. That's actually a fun play on words there, that he's anointed us in Christ. Because Christ means anointed one. So there's a way that Paul is saying here, kind of that we have just been Christed, in a sense. It's kind of how one commentator puts it. It means that we have been made little Christs. We've been made like Christ, made into a community like him, but also God has sealed us. The sealing of God is an image of protection and ownership. It's God declaring over us, you are mine. And then lastly, God has given us the Holy Spirit in our lives, and the Spirit is a final guarantee of what is to come. It's the promise that we will have life forever with God. And all of this is beautiful. It's a really great summary of the outworking of the gospel. But especially important as you look at verse 21, what Paul says God establishes us with you in Christ. God establishes us with you in Christ. Paul's point in all this is to remind the Corinthians of that gospel he preached, but especially to remind them that they've actually all been united together, established together because of this gospel. It's through the gospel, Paul and the Corinthian believers have been united to Christ. And so then all of these things, this anointing, the sealing, the giving of the Holy Spirit, these are all things that they have received together. Even more, the Corinthians need to realize Paul is speaking the truth about this because it's God who's worked through Paul to proclaim the gospel that brought these things into their lives in the first place, that blessed them in these ways. Uh, Their new lives have depended fully on God's work through Paul. So surely, Paul is saying, surely you can see my word is not yes and no, it's always yes, because that is the way God works. Paul's life is an outworking of the gospel, which is always God's yes for all of us. And then finally, in verses 23 and 24, Paul just begins to explain why it is he didn't visit when he said first he would, and it's to spare the Corinthians more grief. If Paul came again, he knew he would have to come and discipline and judge them, and he wasn't ready to do that yet. He doesn't have to lord his authority over, over the church. He's comfortable waiting and giving them more time to repent and process this out before judgment has to come. And instead, he reminds them what he really wants for them. It's not the discipline. It's not the judgment. What he really wants is ultimately their joy. Paul reminding the church here, he loves them. He wants their deep joy. So this whole passage is just Paul explaining himself, defending himself really, for the sake of the gospel. Paul doesn't want the Corinthians to turn from the gospel of Jesus Christ. So he explains the gospel again, the beauty and wonder of it, all the while trying to demonstrate that the gospel is what brought them together in community. The gospel is what forms the foundation of his life and actions for them. It's supposed to be the foundation for all of their life and actions. And so they can actually trust him. They can hold on to the gospel. So just one more thing uh, before I wrap up from this passage. Now, Obviously, in this, this piece, Paul is really working through a lot of distress among the church. But I still think this passage gives us some really great reminders of just how wonderful a gift we actually have in the body of Christ. Paul says so clearly, we are established together in Christ. It's together that we know his benefits. In other words, we need each other. We are blessed to be together. We work together for joy. How is that for the work of the church? And then don't forget that beautiful image that Paul gives of us rejoicing over each other in the coming day of the Lord. But of course, all of this isn't just something to be thankful for, just something to imagine into the future. We can begin to do so many of these things now. We can rejoice over each other now. The encouragement, the support we give each other in the church, it's necessary and beautiful and wonderful. And with that, We aren't waiting until the end of all things to be people of joy. Our life together can be, even should be, characterized by the joy we can give each other now. And even more, as we've been established in Christ, we've been made, we've been established together in Christ. So we live out our lives in Christ with each other. We pursue this gospel together. And especially now. We're trying to figure out our lives after this long, crazy year, a little more. Now is the time to prioritize the church, Christ's body. Now is the time to put in place those habits and connections that we need if we are to truly live into this wonderful gift that we have. That's the gift of each other and Christ in each of us. The beautiful connections that, that we found with those churches in Merida those aren't meant to be something unique. They aren't meant to be something we can only know by traveling thousands and thousands of miles away. It is something that we can know weekly, daily even, right here, as we live more and more into this wonderful gospel community that Jesus died to form. Let us pray. Christ, we are so thankful for the good news of your gospel that you save and and help us, bring us to yourself and bring us into this wonderful community of your church. I ask that you help strengthen our ties, help us to see how we can live and love each other more, and then together in honesty and integrity um, proclaim your gospel out into the world. Amen.